One of the greatest questionnaires in the history of 20th century psychology had a modest start in the pages of a local Colorado newspaper, the Rocky Mountain News, in July 1985. The work of two University of Denver psychologists, Cindy Hazan and Philip Shaver, the questionnaire asked readers to identify which of three statements most closely reflected who they were in love. To hugely improve our chances of thriving in relationships, we should dare to take the same test. Option A. I find it relatively easy to get close to others and am comfortable depending on them and having them depend on me. I don't worry about being abandoned or about someone getting too close to me. Option B. I find that others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. I often worry that my partner doesn't really love me or won't want to stay with me. I want to get very close to my partner and this sometimes scares people away. Option C. I am somewhat uncomfortable being close to others. I find it difficult to trust them completely, difficult to allow myself to depend on them. I'm nervous when anyone gets too close, and often others want me to be more intimate than I feel comfortable being. Which of these options applies to you? A, B or C? Behind the scenes, the options refer to the three main styles of relating to other people, first identified by the English psychologist John Bowlby, the inventor of attachment theory in the 1950s and 60s. Option A signals what is known as a secure pattern of attachment, whereby love and trust come easily. Option B refers to what's known as the anxious pattern of attachment, where one longs to be intimate with others, but is continuously scared of letdown and often precipitates crises in relationships through counterproductively aggressive behaviour. Option C is what is known as the avoidant pattern of attachment, where it feels much easier to avoid the dangers of intimacy through solitary activities and emotional withdrawal. So, which are you? We're going to do a little quick survey here. I'm serious. Oh, and this is to remind me to re remind you to stop by at the lift at the end of the service. So, will you remind me to remind them? Or who's got a good memory in the front row? Front two row? Okay. At the very end, if I forget to mention it, you, 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 you say it. Um, okay, so, uh, we, we want to do a little survey here. Uh, as you assess yourself, would you say that you are secure in your relationships? Uh, or would you say that you're a little anxious, you tend to be a little bit clingy, or would you say you're avoidant, like you feel suffocated kind of quick? Uh, would you text your answer in right now to, uh, to that number and tell us what you are? Uh, theoretically, I guess we could find out who you are if we cared, but we, we, really, we don't. So this is anonymous. So uh, we're just trying to figure out how screwed up our congregation is. So, so where are you? So we're in the series that uh, uh, we're calling 4D Love. It's love in four directions. The whole gospel is summed up with this call that we're to love, love God, love ourselves, love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love and take care of the earth and the animal kingdom. And uh, we're going to be uh, sprinkling in some, some uh, um, uh, what's that called? Attachment disorder, attachment theory, uh, in the process of this, all right? Um, and, and attachment theory is basically this. Uh, if you're secure in your relationship with your parents, you're going to be more inclined to be secure in all your relationships as adults. But if you're insecure, if you couldn't count on them, if they weren't always there, whatever, uh, you're going to have a, a challenging in those areas. And you're either going to be 
clinging, you'll be anxious, or you'll be avoidant. Now, as with any psychological theory, there's always, reality is much more complex than that. Because I'm here to testify that you can have two parents who raise two children exactly the same way, and they come out completely different. Uh, so, so every theory's got its limitations. Um, and there's always free will, and it's always possible to change and all things like that. So you're not predestined to be avoidant or whatever. You can, you can ch- change those things. But it does help us kind of become self-aware of ourselves, giving our background. Do we tend to protect or do we tend to cling and things of that sort? So we'll, we'll be flushing that out throughout this, this whole th- series. What I want to do today is talk about why it is challenging for so many people to really develop a vibrant, secure, bonded, trusting, fulfilling relationship with God. Um, And the answer, one of the reasons is, one of the main reasons is, because we live in a world that doesn't much reflect a loving, caring, uh, always present, always accessible God. We live in a world where there is an incredible amount of pain. So how are we supposed to be, have this bonding, trusting relationship with God when, well, what are we supposed to trust Him for? It seems like uh, things kind of unfold rather willy-nilly and haphazardly. So it's not the problem of evil. So the title of this message, I'm ominously entitling The Devil's Chaplain. <laughs> Too bad this isn't Halloween week. That would just fit in right here. The Devil's Chaplain. I'll think of something scary for Halloween week. Um, You'll see what that means here in a little bit, uh, in just a little bit. So it's not a problem of evil, but first I want to kind of just cover quickly the, the biblical foundation for these, this 4D love, love in four direction. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest command, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And we like to emphasize that mind around here because the mind is for thinking, so you're worshiping God when you're thinking authentically. This is the first and greatest commandment, but he couldn't stop there. The second is like it, or it could be the second is a reflection of it, a derivative from it, so much so that I can't mention the one without mentioning the other. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So there's two commands, but really there are two sides of one command. You're to love God, and then out of that love relationship with God, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And on this hang all the law and the prophets. And law and prophets is simply a Jewish way of saying the whole Bible. So everything hangs on this, our being able to love like this. Uh, we'll see throughout this series that love is the sine qua non of Christian ethics. It's the, that without which nothing else matters. It's, if we get this one down, if we can love like this, then everything else we need to get down will get down. But if we don't love like this, if we fail to love like this, then it doesn't matter what else we get down. It's altogether worthless. 1 Corinthians 13. So... Uh, there, 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 there we have the three loves that we're talking about. The fourth one comes from a reading of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we read that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves. Um, here we're, 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 we're entrusted, given this authority to take care of the earth and the animal kingdom. And... Um, we're to do that in a way that reflects the way God lords over us. We're to have a loving dominion, the way that God has a loving dominion over us. Uh, we're we're to, to care for and steward the earth and the animal kingdom. So this encompasses the whole of what we're called to do. Uh, loving God, and our, loving God, loving ourselves, loving our neighbor as ourselves, and then loving uh, the earth and the animal kingdom. You could, you, could, you could diagram it like this, if pictures work for you. 
And this really kind of just sums up the whole message of the Bible. Uh, God is cross-like love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. 1 John 3, 16, love is defined by the cross. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So do the math. God is love. Love is the cross. God is cross-like love. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's why I have it as a triangle, uh, is united by the kind of love that's revealed on Calvary. A perfect, unsurpassable, unwavering, infinitely intense, other-oriented love. That's who God is. Now, out of that fullness of love, God creates human beings. And God creates us in his image. And part of what that means is that, that we have, go to the next slide, but we, we have a sort of God-shaped vacuum inside of us. But it's a vacuum, we're never to experience a vacuum. It was meant just because God wants to pour his whole life into us. And then out of the fullness of the life that we receive from God, where we get our identity and our worth and our significance and, and, and all of that, our lovability from God, then we overflow in love towards other people. And as we overflow with love towards other people, they overflow with love towards us. And we together then all take care of the earth and the animal kingdom. This is how God designed it to operate. This is God's goal. And see, as that happens, when that, when, when that becomes realized, now the whole creation will reflect the love of the triune God. Go to the next slide. That we're encompassed by the triune God. This is part of what it means in 1 Peter when it says that, that we are participants of the divine nature. We're caught up in the triune love and all of creation is caught up in that triune love. And when this is fully realized, when it's fully actualized, and praise God, someday it will be. Amen? When it's fully realized, God's love will de define every square inch of the cosmos. Uh, everything will be sort of like a fractal of the triune love of God. And in that way, God's love has been expanded, expanded and now all of creation glorifies God. And that just means it puts the beauty of God's love on display. Uh, as we're caught up in that love and we share that love and it percolates over the earth, this is reality as God intends it. That was the plan. That is the kingdom of God. The dome which God is king. Um, to the extent that, the, that God is reigning over a person's life or over a group's life, it will resemble that. It will be moving in that kind of direction. Um, and that was the plan. That still is the plan. It's about bringing God's will, making it, seeing it done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the, been the goal all along. Now someday that will be realized, but our job is to manifest it now. As followers of Jesus, our job is to put on display that 4D love as much now as possible. To give the world a preview of what the whole world's going to look like later on. Okay, so we're called to manifest this now. But I want us to notice... Everything hangs. The, the spigot that introduces the love of God into this world comes through the individual. It's as we are aligned with God and our relationship with God is secure and it's life-giving uh, and it's transformative. To the degree that that is true, um, we will then be overflowing with love towards others and taking care of the earth and the animal kingdom. But to the degree that that's not true, the whole thing falls apart. So it brings us back to this fundamental question. How do you have a stable, bonded, trusting relationship with God when you're living in a world where random capricious things can hit us? A world that's so, at least it doesn't consistently reflect the character of God. And sometimes it dismally reflects the character of God. Sometimes it's supposed to reflect the character of the devil. How do you trust God and when, well, what do you trust him for? Your health, that might go tomorrow. Uh, your job, that, that, that could leave you tomorrow. I mean... We live in this very iffy world. How do you develop a bond and trusting relationship with God uh, in a world like that? And we're going to watch a video here. And this video is, I think, it's an interview with Stephen Fry from this one reverend, and I forget his name. But uh, Stephen Fry is this uh, professor who's also a well-known atheist over in England. 
And this is, I think, one of the most passionate, one of the most eloquent and powerful statements on behalf of atheism I've ever heard. But we here at Wilderness Church are not, we, we, if what we're believing is true, it should have nothing to fear, right? So our, our attitude is, let's hear what he has to say. Let's bring it. Now, it might rattle a few cages, so be ready for that. But you're worshiping God when you're thinking, so keep thinking. And as much as you will be maybe mesmerized by Stephen Fry's comments, don't forget to keep one eye open to, to capture the response of the reverend because it's kind of entertaining. Let's watch. Because of copyright restrictions, we trim some content from this sermon. Please visit our website, whchurch.org, where we'll try to post a link to the material that we used. <sighs> Love that guy's face. <laughs> uh, what, what did I get into? What did I get into? I'm wondering, like, what do you think God thinks of Stephen Fry? Um, hang on a second. Maybe to some it seems obvious, but like, I imagine that a lot of Christians just assume that anyone who's going to give an answer like that is going to, excuse the pun, fry. Um, <laughs> it, it, you think Fry is going to fry? Is God up there ready to throw a thunderbolt at him? Or yeah, could God be applauding that? See, here's the thing. If, if I assumed that God was behind every uh, parasite, bacteria, viruses, everything that inflicts pain on animals and on humans, if I thought God was behind that, God designed things that way, then I'd be in his camp. And it seems to me that there's something praiseworthy about his willingness to say that. Um, he, it's kind of admirable. He's putting, he's putting truth above his own self-preservation. He's essentially saying, okay, look, you can damn me if you want. You got the power to, but, but I, I, I'm not going to bow down and lick your boots and pretend like you're all good and all loving when you openly acknowledge that you are the one behind all this misery and all this suffering. If that was, if that was true, well, then there's something praiseworthy about this. I, 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 I won't do it. I'm not going to pretend. Saying you're all loving, all good, all beautiful, even though you do these horrendous things. Look at, why would God be mad at that? If, in fact, that's a false picture of God, and I think it is. God applauds people getting rid of false pictures of God, and that's false picture number one. And so it seems to me that God would be applauding that. I worry about, frankly, if I can be honest up here, and I've always committed to being honest, I'm just thinking out loud, but I, I kind of worry about folks who have that picture of God but don't reject it. Uh, it, it, they are willing to, to bow down and, and they believe that God is behind every single affliction that affects people, every parasite, every disease, cancer. God's behind all of that. In fact, God predestines all that. And yet you're supposed to say God's all good and all loving. Even though maybe, for all I know, you predestined my newborn baby to go to hell, maybe my, my whole family to go to hell, but I still will call you good and I still will call you loving. Because if I don't, then that indicates that maybe I'm going to go to hell. And I, it's a save yourself theology, it seems to me. Take my kid! I'll be, it's a hangman theology. Take my kid. I'll, I'll still call you good. Just don't take me. It seems to me that, given the two, I, God would be uh, looking at Mr. Fry more favorably. If I die and go to the pretty gates and I meet a monster God who claims to have done all this sort of things, I'm going to assume it's a test. My last test. And I think God would want me to respond more like, fry than like uh, a lot of Christians. But in any case, the question still needs addressing. If, if this world's created by and sustained by an all-good, all-powerful, all-loving God, why is it so screwed up? Now, some of it is, some of the suffering is easy to explain, or at least it's not that hard to explain, I, I think, because like human-on-human -human violence, that's not too hard to explain once you understand that the goal of the whole thing is love. And love has got to be chosen. It can't be coerced. 
And so love presupposes free will. And free will presupposes you have the power to do this or to do that. This being the good thing, that being the bad thing. And if God gives you the power to do this and to do that, then God can't take away that power because you're going to do that. Because if God took away the power because he didn't want you to do that, well, then he didn't give you the power to do this or to do that, which means he didn't give you free will. Following this? If you have free will, you have the power to go do, do this or that, which means God can't just intervene and revoke that. And this is why there are things God can't do. Not because he lacks the power, but because of the kind of world he created. A world where, where love is the goal, so free will is the means. And there's no way to create that world that's capable of love without risking the possibility of evil coming in because you give agents free will. Uh, and so that, that isn't that hard to explain, I don't think. Human, human on human violence and, and, and our capacity to harm the environment with our decisions, that I can explain. But what do you do with natural, what's called natural evil? What do you do with some of the atrocities that are in nature? But the parasite, that, that it, its whole life cycle is to worm into the eyeball of a child and eat it from the inside out. We've got parasites there that we just had this happen uh, this summer where this kid contracted this little tiny one-celled bug in his ear that ate his brain. There's a bug out there in our lakes, and it's in like a bunch of states, that, that once it gets in, it can get in the ear, it, it, it uh, goes after the brain and almost always kills the victim, but it, if not that, it will leave them mentally impaired. Um, we have that in our lakes here. Why would God design that? That's a good question. And there's a, there's a horrendous, tons of examples of this. Things that seem specifically designed to inflict maximal suffering. One of the things that caused Charles Darwin to lose his faith is he was really getting in touch with all the suffering that's been going on throughout the whole evolutionary process. He was like, like, what kind of God would design things like this? He was really impressed by this one wasp. I think it, uh, wasp, it's called the Ichneumenidae wasp, if I'm pronouncing it right. Why they give these wasps these long Latin names, I don't know. But Ichneumenidae, and this wasp... Uh, it, it lands on a caterpillar and immediately paralyzes it with its, it's got poison that paralyzes the caterpillar, but doesn't harm it. The thing is just frozen. Then it implants its larvae, hundreds of them, inside of this caterpillar. And the, the larvae feed on that caterpillar for seven to ten days, eat it from the inside out. But they know, somehow, they know exactly which organs not to harm to keep the caterpillar alive to the very end. There's an intelligence there, but it, it seems like there's a design there, but it's not a benevolent one, not, not a kind one. And so Dr. Charles Darwin, he, he was trained to be a minister, actually, at one point in his life, but he lost his faith because of all, how, how, how is nature so red in tooth and claw? It's vicious. It's nasty. Why is that? He, he wrote this to a friend of his. Uh, he said, what a, what, a, what a book, A Devil's Chaplain, and here's the title, what a... What a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel works of nature. What he's saying is that if, if there's a story being told here, it's a story of, that's told by the chaplain's, uh, the devil's chaplain. Uh, it's got a demonic side to it, in other words. Um, if there's an intelligence at work, it's not an altogether good intelligence. And he ended up thinking that there wasn't any sort of intelligence at, at, at work. So what do you do with this? Now, I'm going to give a response to that. And I'll give you a warning here. Uh, number one, we are going to worship God with all of our minds, so prepare to think. Number two, if you've never heard me talk on this topic before, it might make your head spin. Um, you may have never heard it before. And so I encourage you, as you're listening to this, if it sounds really weird, like, what? I've never seen creation this way. Just ask yourself the question, am I being biblical? 
right? That's the only relevant question. Is this biblical? And then three, I'll give you another warning. I'm going to prove to you that it's biblical by deluging, showering you with a bunch of scripture. What was I trying to say? Deluge. Okay, so let's go. Uh, Get ready. And if, you, if ever you were to be a person who took notes, this would be a good time to take notes. And also, it's 8 minutes to 12, so this might go with some rapidity. So prepare. It's gonna be, okay, ready? Here we go. Get ready for a head spin. Some of these people will be reviewed, but very important review. For one thing, in Genesis 3, I, I, you might have noticed this, that it's only after Adam and Eve rebel the Lord says that there'll be thistles now and thorns and the ground's going to be hard to work and there's going to be pain in childbirth. And nature becomes unpleasant. But that only happens after the fall. Now, I don't take this as a scientific report. I don't think it was intended like that. But it is revealing a truth that there's, as something, there's something off with nature as we now find it. It wasn't supposed to be this nasty. Here's a second consideration. Uh, in the New Testament, we read a lot about principalities and powers and rulers and authorities and dominions. Uh, these all refer to different categories of high-ranking spirit agents, uh, many of whom rebelled. And the understanding in the first century, and uh, you always have to compare to understand what a text means, you have to look at what, what it would have meant in its context. In that context, rulers and authorities and dominions, they referred to these high-ranking spirit beings who had authority over nature. And some had authority over, over uh, human society. And they were supposed to use that authority to bless us. And to, you know, work in line with God. God always works through mediators. They're supposed to be one of the mediators. Just like God gave us the authority over the earth and the animal kingdom. Uh, and we're supposed to bless the earth and the animal kingdom. But when we fall, we can now use that authority, that say-so, at cross-purposes with God. And bring destruction on the earth and the animal kingdom as well as on ourselves. Um, well, the same thing's true on a cosmic level. It's just that they have more authority. And so the, the understanding is that when they rebel against God, they now use that authority because it's irrevocable. God can't take it back once he gives it, otherwise he didn't give it. And so God now has to work around these agents, but they, if they had authority to bless the creation, they also have authority to curse the creation. And I submit to you that every, every aspect of nature that is not, does not reflect the benevolent character of God, I think, comes from wills other than God. It comes from the corrupting influence of these, these agents. Then we find the fact that Satan is, uh, in the New Testament, given some incredible titles. There's no literature in the ancient world that, uh, no Jewish literature, that comes close to ascribing this much authority to Satan or to any other of these fallen agents. But Satan is referred to as the prince, the archon of this world. Archon referred to the highest uh, position in a given region, the CEO. It doesn't mean you're the highest position everywhere, but in this region, you're, you're, you're the one in charge. And Jesus says that of Satan. I, I, I meet people here and there who say, I can't believe in Satan. I can't believe in spirit beings. I, I think that's medieval stuff. And my response, I don't always say this, but it's like, well, I'll tell you what, if you die and rise from the dead, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you more carefully. Uh, in the meantime, this guy's got the credentials. <laughs> he died, I got good reason to think he's, he's the son of God. So if he thinks that there's a Satan who's the prince of the world, I'm going to believe there's a Satan who's the prince of the world. And then he's called the prince ruler of the air. And the god of this age, Paul says. And he, he, John goes so far as to say he controls the entire world. Now that's uh, hyperbole, but, but he's making a strong statement here. This world is, you know, is, is now oppressed by this thief who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Got remarkable authority, and so it seems to make perfect sense that if the world's screwed up, some of it's going to be the result of 
him and the principalities and powers doing what they're doing. Then we find that in, in the Bible, sometimes uh, Satan displays some authority over nature, as in the book of Job. He's able to cause the thunder, the lightning to come down and destroy some of Job's property and winds to blow over other kind of stuff. You find him doing the same thing in the book of Revelation, controlling the winds of the four corners of the earth, and that's symbolic, but it's all predicated on the assumption that, of course, Satan can interfere with nature, can, can corrupt nature. We might see a reflection of this when Jesus rebukes a storm um, in Mark 4. He uses the same word that is used when he rebukes a demon, when he's casting a demon out of a person. And so he's treating this storm like a demon. Now, I don't think it means that there's a demon behind every storm, but it does show that there's a demonic quality when, when we're supposed to be the rulers of, have dominion in this world, and so to be in a position where there's a storm that could possibly kill you, that ought not to happen. It reflects that there's something wrong with nature as it's now running. And so Jesus rebukes that. I've tried rebuking a couple storms, but never to any uh, effects so far, but I'm working on it. Okay, um, we find in Hebrews that, that uh, it says Jesus came to destroy the devil who has the power of death or holds the key of death. Now, that's why Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning, John, John 8, 44. So here's the thing. Death is simply, it's an absolutely natural event given the laws of physics that we have today. It's absolutely predictable. Everything's got to die. We can't even conceive how it could be otherwise. And yet, passage here says that, that Satan is the, the one who is the Lord of death. So what does that say about the laws as they operate now? If the laws as they operate now require death, and Satan's the Lord of death, doesn't that suggest that the, Lord, that the laws as they're operating now have been tampered with by the Lord of death so that they will bring about death? I'm just saying. It seems, I think it makes sense. Then it says, Jesus came to destroy the devil and his works. The works of the devil, this is what Jesus was doing throughout his whole ministry. Uh, the works of the devil were the sickness and disease and the deformities and all the other things that Jesus confronted. That's why the Gospels diagnose these things as coming from the enemy. And Jesus reveals God's will in contrast to the, the will of the enemy by bringing healing to these people. So he came to destroy the, 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 the works of the devil. That means that these things are themselves the works of the devil. And yet, they're totally predictable given the laws of physics that we have today. The laws of physics that we have today, I submit to you, are not identical with the ones that God created. And then we find, what's the next verse on this? Oh yeah, Peter summarizes Jesus' whole ministry when he's preaching to, to Cornelius. When he says, Jesus was anointed by God, and he went about doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil. What does that say if you need healing? You're under the power of the devil. Um, I know we got a long Christian tradition of, of you know, attributing everything to God, but Peter here is summarizing his, Jesus' whole ministry and the whole category of those who are in need of healing are under the power of the devil. They're, they're suffering because nature, as it now is, has been corrupted. And Jesus came to, to set them free. It doesn't mean that there's a demon behind every headache, but it does mean that there's an enemy force behind all infirmities. Everything that is, that whenever there's something that doesn't work the way it was designed to work, by God, there, you've got an interference. And, and that reflects the, the, the ongoing influence of the principalities and powers. And the final thing I'll say, which is not at all the final thing to say, I'm only halfway done, but uh, <laughs> it seemed like a good thing to you know, give you a little brain relief for a second, uh, is that in all the pictures of the end, of the end of history, of heaven, and all of them, 
We have a whole creation that has been restored. Um, th there's no violence in the animal kingdom. The lion will lay down with the lamb, the child will play with the cobra and stuff. Which tells us then that if the world right now is not that way, it's because something is wrong. It, 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 it's still in need of redemption. We haven't quite gotten there. I'll also add that this was the uniform view of the early church. Uh, which is, I think, important because these are the folks who are the direct heirs of the apostles. And they kind of interpret the apostles. Not, not that they get everything right, but, but they should be paid close attention to. If you were to ask anybody, in the first three centuries of the church, why are there these killer parasites and why are there droughts and famines and mudslides and bone cancer and all the other terrible things that nature sends our way? Why? No one would say, oh, the Father's will is so mysterious. Somehow these things all contribute to the beauty. No, they don't say that. What they all uniformly say, Tatian, Tertullian, Origen, they say, this an enemy has done. Uh, this world, it, we're living in enemy-occupied territory. We're behind enemy lines. We're in a war zone. And, and, and when these terrible things happen at the result of nature, they say it's because nature as it now is, is corrupted. Athenagoras was a second century theologian. Uh, he said this about Satan. He said that Satan is the spirit originally entrusted with the control of matter and the form of matter. He was the archon of the material world. Uh, the, the, the CEO um, of, 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 material, of material issues. And he was supposed to use that in line with God's will to bring about God's will throughout the cosmos as it is in heaven. Unfortunately, the prince of matter now exercises a control and management contrary to the good that is in God. Just like human beings, we now, we, we now uh, offer a, 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 a kind of control and management of the earth that is contrary to the good that is in God. And the result is that everything under us suffers. Same thing is true, but in a bigger way, Athenagoras is saying, of Satan. So all suffering and violence in creation is a result of the corrupting influence of an evil ruling prince and the demons his followers. God didn't do it. He wasn't the one who was imagining all these terrible things in nature. It's a result of corruption. This is why Paul also says in Romans 8, he says that this entire creation groans. Um, it, it, it's experiencing frustration and decay. Now just look at that. This creation is subject to, to it's in bondage to decay, and it's, it's experiencing this frustration, which means that the decay isn't supposed to be here. And yet, look at the, one of the most fundamental laws of physics is the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything tends towards decay. Everything tends towards entropy. Everything winds down. But if that's not part of the original creation, well then, Paul's saying that's one of the reasons why it groans. We're groaning in this, is this decay. And he likens it to the pains of childbirth, like a guy would ever know. Like a woman in pains of childbirth. But he's, obviously, he's trying to grasp on, like, what is, like, the worst thing imaginable? Uh, and the greatest pain, the first thing that comes to his mind is childbirth. So it's like this, this, this creation is going, you did this to me! He's experiencing the pain, expressing the pain of the estrangement from God here. But it's the whole creation that's down. A lot of Christians seem to think that the fall, the primary fall, was a human fall. And, and that, that right now, humans maybe are, are tainted, but the rest of the world is operating just as God intended. But I submit to you that the human fall is a footnote to the grand fall, which was the fall of the, the angels, the rebellion of the angels. We got caught up in their downward spiral. 
And we're still caught up in that old thing. But we don't have the authority to affect the whole cosmos. Yeah, we can screw up the earth pretty good. We're doing a good job of that. But we can't. We, we can't. Our sin doesn't affect everybody throughout the whole cosmos. There's something, someone bigger than us that is also working at cross purposes with God. And that is the one that the Bible describes as Satan. I know it's not fashionable to believe in Satan and demons and all those things today. But I'm telling you... Uh, they're real. It's real. I, I'll go into that some other time. We've got at war. That'll help you. Um, but so the whole creation is travailing in this. And, and this is my final argument on behalf of the corrupted creation. The whole creation needs redemption, which already shows that, that the, the creation as it now is isn't, isn't the way it was supposed to be. So in Colossians, for example, we read this. God is at work to reconcile to himself all things. Everyone say all things. That's things, whether they're on earth or things in heaven, in the heavenly realms. Heaven, by the way, isn't always just a pure, wonderful place where God lives in the Bible. It's the spiritual realm. And so it's the heavenlies. And it's, there's good stuff going on there, and there's bad stuff going on there. But someday that will all be reconciled. And he does it by making peace through his blood that's shed on the cross. And whenever you hear that sacrificial language of the blood shed on the cross, it's simply a way of communicating the self-sacrificial love that was revealed on the cross. So here this author is saying that uh, right now God is at work. With the same love that, that redeemed us on the cross is at work to redeem the entire creation. And it's at work to reconcile everything to God, to make everything harmonious, to bring God's shalom to all things. But that presupposes that all things as they now are, are broken and in need of redemption. Uh, the cross encompasses, and there's another thing that Christians often, sometimes get, I think, we think that we're the only things that are fallen, and we think that we're the only things that got saved. What I'm submitting to you today is everything got fallen, everything is broken, and everything's being redeemed. Praise God. But that shows that, that the creation that we have right now is still in need of redemption. And the evidence of that is that it operates the way that Fry describes it operating. It, 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 you can see some of the glory of God in all creation for sure, but you see a lot of other nasty stuff that reflects the influence of the enemy. So here, here, here's three, three quick takeaways I want us to get from this. Number one, and these are foundational pieces here at Woodland Hills Church. It'll be a review for a lot, but uh, new to some. Number one, don't, I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you, don't base your mental picture of God on anything that's happening in the natural world. Um, I, it, will, it will screw you up. Yeah, thank God when, when, when you have good health and things are going right and you don't have the hookworm and you don't have the tapeworm and you don't have the, the parasite. That's wonderful. But don't base your view of God on that because tomorrow you might get it. Praise God. Pray, pray for health and praise God that you've got health. But health is a really iffy thing. And so if you think God, if the proof that God cares about you is that you're feeling healthy, what happens when you're, you get the news that you're going to die in three months? You see... Thank God for whatever good comes your way. Every good gift comes from the Father above. But don't look to that to be kind of the proof that God cares about you. Oh, I know God loves me because he's taking such good care of me. Well, you think that people who got hell dumped on them didn't love God? People who love God, read the book of Job. It happens all the time. See, so thank God for the good that comes. But base your mental conception of God. We say this ad nauseum here because it's worth saying ad nauseum. But base your conception of God entirely on the person of Jesus Christ. And especially on Jesus Christ crucified. He's the full revelation of God. Not one revelation among others. This is what God is like. Amen. And when he says, if you see me, you see the Father. We've got to really trust him on that. He says, don't look anywhere else. Keep your eyes focused. This is the Son. This is the one word of God. 
And so I, here's a rule of thumb that I use. I encourage you to uh, do the same. It's important that we can divide and separate the wheat from the tares. Uh, what is of God and what's not? And so here, here's a rule of thumb. If, if, if we see the Father when we look at Jesus, then it would seem to follow that if we can't imagine Jesus doing it, we shouldn't imagine the Father doing it. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I can't, from all that I've read about Jesus in the Gospels, I can't imagine him specifically designing a parasite that can work its way into a kid's eye and eat it from the inside out so the kid is blind. I just, something rubs me wrong about that when I think of Jesus doing that. Or any of the other million kind of things that can inflict maximal pain on people and on animals. I can't imagine God, Jesus doing that. Everything he did he, was the opposite of that. And so why would I ever think insurance policies notwithstanding, why would I think God's behind that? Uh, uh, every, I operate with this perspective that everything in nature and in the world that does not reflect the benevolent, loving will of God, the character of God, comes from some will other than God. Whether it's humans or whether it's angelic or a combination of the two. But be able to separate. This is of God. This is not. This an enemy has done. And I can't tell you the number of people that I have met who have just been liberated from when they, when they could get free of the idea that God's up there pulling all the strings, that God is inflicting your kid with this bone cancer or what have you. To get free of that is just, it allowed them to love God again and to trust God again. Um, don't, let, don't, don't let the circumstances of your life be the proof that God cares about you. The proof that God cares about you is Calvary. The proof that God loves you is Calvary. The proof that God is good is Calvary. Hallelujah. Whatever else is going on in your life, keep your eyes fixed on Calvary. That's where the God is revealed. Second thing is the good news, and that is that it won't always be like this. Uh, yes, we're in, experiencing the pain of estrangement right now. But, but that pain, Paul says, it's the pain of, of, of child labor, which means it's going somewhere. This pain is going to give birth at some point. Uh, and it will be beautiful and it will be wonderful to the point where Paul says that all the suffering of this present age can't even be compared to the glory which God has in store for those who love him. All right, it's unimaginably beautiful. So it's going somewhere. It's not that God causes any of this. He, he, he's, not the, he's not the cause of any of the suffering and the evil in the world. But he's a master of bringing good out of evil and a master at using everything the enemy does to move forward towards his plan. And someday, praise God, that will be, that will come to pass. That triangle that I had earlier, if you can put it up there again, that's the kingdom of God and that will be someday. God will be all in all, Paul says. Someday God's love will define every square inch of the cosmos. Someday there'll be perfect harmony reflected throughout the whole cosmos. Someday the harmony of the triune God will itself be the harmony of the cosmos and God will be all in all and it will be beautiful and I can't wait. Hallelujah. Soon and very soon. Last thing important is this. If we're still waiting for that future uh, reconciliation the cross, weaving all things together, if we're still looking for that, it means that we're still in the broken world. And it means that we have to accept that we're part of this broken world. We all come into this world and we inherit brokenness. And that's the starting point. Which means we've got to deal with our brokenness and be honest with our, our brokenness. Um, now, here's the thing. In this toxic culture in which we live, words become weaponized very quickly. And the word broken has been weaponized. Um, to the point where some religious groups use this idea of broken as a judgment. Like, like we all, okay, we're, we're, maybe we're not perfect, but you're broken. You're defective. With the, with the, the, the meaning, you, you don't belong here. You got the deal breaker thing. 
But see, the biblical concept of brokenness should have the exact opposite effect on us if we're understanding it rightly. And it should lead us not to judgment, to, to, but to compassion. We're born in this broken world, uh, and we inherit this brokenness. All of us are broken in a multitude of ways. I think far more broken than we let on. We, we, we get a picture of ourselves, and we, it's hard for us to be really honest with it. But I'll tell you, I, I'm, I've had a tremendous amount of healing in my life. Praise God, and I, it's been beautiful. But I'm still, I stand before you a broken person. I'm broken, I, I, I will admit it. And, and, and we're broken, all of us are broken physically because we all get sick and die, but some people are, are more obviously broken because uh, they have parts of the body that were designed to work a certain way, but it doesn't work that way, whether it's a mind or an eye or an ear or what have you. But all of us are broken in emotional ways, and if, if, if we don't inherit the brokenness through our genes, we acquire it through our upbringing, but we're broken emotionally and, and, and psychologically, mentally, sexually, relationally, spiritually. We're broken! And there's no point whatsoever in trying to play this stupid religious game of ranking whose brokenness is, is, is worse than whose. Uh, the point of saying we're all broken is that that's the last word. There's no competition here. There's no, we're not supposed to be eyeing each other up on that. In fact, Jesus, to free us from that, says, do the opposite of what you're inclined to do. You're inclined to like, feed off of, think your brokenness is less than another person so you can like, feel righteous. No, in fact, assume the opposite. Whatever you see in another person, consider that to be a little dust particle compared to this tree trunk coming out of your eyes. And there's a million dust particles in a tree trunk, I'm sure. So if you're inclined to judge somebody, remind yourself on Jesus' authority that you're a million times worse. And it doesn't matter what you see in the other person. It doesn't matter. Uh, you're to consider yourself a million times worse, not to, to be, berate yourself or get down on yourself, but to free you from the temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree of judgment. Right? And what Jesus is saying is quit that game. Consider yourself the worst of sinners. If you really consider yourself the worst of sinners, that might be bad news for you. I mean, you're kind of a loser, aren't you? But see, you're only a loser if you're still playing the judgment game. It says that now you're turning it on yourself. And the point of the whole thing is to free us from that judgment game. To have a community where our only identity is found in Christ. And we're not sizing up, we're not comparing, we're not contrasting, we're not looking at somebody else and wondering about their sin. If someone invites us in our life, fine, we'll, 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 we'll share an opinion when they want it. But like we always say around here, if someone hasn't invited you in on your life, they, you're allowed one opinion of them. And I don't care who we're talking about. That guy in Florida, what was his name, raped all those teenage girls and he's committed suicide in prison. Uh, you know, I, I don't get it. Looking at society needs to lock him up, that's, that's for sure. And, and he'll see justice someday, but we leave all that to God. I need to look at that guy and, and like Solzhenitsyn said, the, the threat of evil runs through every human heart. And I can say, in different circumstances, I might be him. I'll leave judgment to God there, but I can't make myself superior to him or to anybody else. In fact, I got a tree trunk compared to that guy. And it's so freeing to do that because now you're free just to love and you don't have to assess and don't have to size up. And when you get a community of people who all believe that, yeah, we all believe that we're, we're the worst of sinners. Okay, let's have a debate over that. No, I'm the worst. No, no, you're the worst. <laughs> but see, you have a community that's free of that kind of judgment. And that, that, that's what I, love, what I love about the tap, uh, which is having a Christmas party, by the way, on October 25th. All labels off. You're just free to love. Uh, or I talked to Teen Challenge the other night, and, and it's just so beautiful. You get to, when you talk with people in recovery, they're done with the BS. They don't have time for that anymore. It's like we've been there, done that, but we all know why we're here, right? We're all addicts. We all are in need. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We got nothing to hide. We got nothing to lose. We can be free. We're honest with each other. We can speak the truth and love to one another. So, folks. That's the good news. We're to be a community. When you acknowledge the brokenness of creation and what we all have, look at 
we're all, in, we're all part of this, this creation travailing in labor pains, right? But you don't blame the woman in labor for having labor pains. <laughs> no, you would have compassion, wouldn't you? The point of the brokenness is to elicit compassion, not to elicit judgment. Don't let any of your mental picture of God be infected by the war zone of this world. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Go to him regularly and receive that love. Uh, bring it in deeply. And out of that comes all the transformation in our life. When you finally get that you, in fact, are loved for free in the midst of your total brokenness, that's when you begin to be healed out of your brokenness. Step by step. Amen. But you got to get rid of all the pretense to, in order to get there. Where'd you stand? The lift. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Don't forget to stop by out in the gathering area. Uh, talk to these guys. and Yeah, come on. Let's get them over that. They need 300. Uh, that, that should be easy for us. And then they get an extra 5,000. And that's a good thing. Also, don't forget the Condoleezza uh, ministry. We want to be supporting these folks. And I know we ask you guys for money a lot. But you know what? It's going to a good cause. And don't you like giving to things that are a good cause, that further the kingdom? We're actually doing you a favor. You get to give to something that matters. All right. All right, all right. As, as we leave here, can we do it as a people that are committed to always having our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and receiving his love on a moment-by-moment -moment basis and sharing it with others? If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. God bless you guys.